You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Hello and good evening. How wonderful it is to see so many of you interested in food and, I suspect, wanting to get involved or already involved with its production. So it's great to have you here. I'm going to ask that for those of you who have one of these smartphones, that you do put it on silent. It is being videoed this evening, um, and so uh, having phones on silent would be great, and when it's your turn to ask questions, if you can introduce yourself prior to your question, that would be wonderful. Before we move any further, we do need to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation who lived and uh, taught and conducted a a sustainable life for thousands of years before um, some of us washed up on these shores. So we have a long tradition in which we follow. We really uh, want to welcome you to the university and to the forum this evening. This forum is hosted by Sydney Ideas, by the Sydney Environment Institute and uh, our Healthy Food Systems Node, which... uh, is a joint node between the Charles Perkins Centre and the Marie Bashir Institute at the University of Sydney. I'm Robin Alders. I convene the Healthy Food Systems and I'm privileged to be your chair this evening. You've, you already know what it's about. You've signed up because you're interested in urban food and the future of food and this is fabulous. We know that we have to nourish an increasing number of people in our world and we also know that in our cities the membership of our households are changing. So most of you are here because you're interested in your own food. Some of you will have household members that may be be along the lines of companion animals. So you might at some stage also give them a passing thought as you think about sustainable food production in our urban areas. But it is my privilege to introduce to you our panellists for this evening. We're very lucky that we have three really uh, committed Uh, people to to speak with us this evening and to share their knowledge. I'm pleased to introduce Megan, who's sitting in the middle. Um, Megan graduated from the University of Sydney in 2014 with a Bachelor of Arts, majoring in Sociology and Human Geography. After spending her final semester in Mexico and a further two years in Colombia, working in education and community development, Megan returned to the University of Sydney to study a Master's of Sustainability. She's also working with a prominent uh, environmental lawyer on policy reform and legal research, as well as volunteering with a social impact non-profit organisation to enhance opportunity and networks between Latin America and Australia. Fabulous. Um, She's also an author of the blog that you might have seen linked to tonight's event, so I commend it to you. And the title of that is, Can Urban Agriculture Reduce Food Insecurity for the Urban Poor? to Lenore, who possibly has travelled the furthest to be with us tonight. Um, She is the Canada Chair, uh, Research Chair in Food Security and Environment at the University of Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Lenore, you're welcome, and uh, we acknowledge you as an active researcher and participant in local food systems development and has worked, and you've worked, we acknowledge that you've worked on issues such as farmland preservation, direct marketing, crop diversity, and encouraging culinary culture. 
Not to be outdone, Toby, at the end, has come almost as far, all the way from Western Australia. Um, he's the Chief Executive Officer and founder of Green World Revolution, a not-for-profit environment, social enterprise, uh, not-for-profit environmental social enterprise, and has a real focus on growing jobs for the unemployed. GWR is producing fresh produce five days a week and delivering to 35 restaurants and cafes. By producing local food for local business, GWR is also helping to reduce pollution associated with food transportation, reducing waste by collecting and composting restaurant food waste, and reusing substantial amounts of packaging. With a resume like that, we may not let you return to Western Australia. Each panellist has uh, agreed to give us around a 10-minute presentation. Two of them have um, uh, PowerPoint presentations. The other two will um, speak... Uh, uh, Megan will speak to us without a presentation. So, um, in order to move right along, I'd like to invite Megan. Would you like to come and start the proceeding? Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Rowan, for that introduction. I'm really excited to be here tonight and to talk to you all about some of the research I've been doing, mainly in Australia's um, food system to do with food insecurity. And I guess my key um, focus or research interest is how urban agriculture can play a role in making our cities more resilient, inclusive and livable. So as I started my research, I had this preconceived idea that our food system you know, was very successful, we're a um, net producer and exporter of agriculture. Um, we, um, the majority of the food source that we have domestically is all produced um, about 93% by local farmers. And we're ranked fifth in the world on the food um, security, global food security index. So it all looks pretty good from a um, an outside perspective. But when I started to do some research, I found that actually it can be quite damaging on our environment and, and also on the health and the diet of our population. Um, some of the research I found is that we're degrading our water, fresh water supply, our top soil. Um, we're very much reliant on fossil fuels, transport, pesticides and fertilisers. And in our urban cities, you know, we're seeing all this urban growth and all this urban sprawl. And what we're doing is we're paving over a lot of our prime arable land and where our peri-urban farms are and our local food supply. So what we're doing is we're pushing it further and further away from our city centres. And as we do that, we're becoming more reliant on transport. And if we think about why that's a problem is what would happen if these transport routes got blocked? Um, what happens when we start having floods and bushfires? And um, even if we have issues to do with um, an oil crisis or fuel for the trucks to come in, our, water, our food supply is going to get cut off. And there was actually some research done in Sydney City particular, particularly, and they estimated that if our transport routes got cut off, Sydney City would have two days left of consumption before we completely ran out of food. So it's really important that we start to grow food in our city to build a more um, resilient city. 
Now, if we think about it more from a health and well-being um, perspective or approach, um, the, the, foods, the food system that we have isn't doing much for our diets. Australians aren't consuming a very healthy and nutritious diet. And some of the latest um, ABS stats have shown that around 72.8% of Australians are overweight or obese, and that includes one in four children. We're also suffering more from cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Our diet is the second leading cause of cancer, and our diet is contributing to 7% of the disease burden in Australia. If we look at it from a food security standpoint, the uh, Food Bank 2016 hunger report showed that one in six Australians have experienced food insecurity. More than half a million Australians attend a food bank each month. And about a quarter of those people that face food insecurity face food shortages on a regular basis. And what do they do to cope with food insecurities? They reduce their meal size, they skip their meals, and they choose to eat cheap carbohydrates instead of fresh fruits and vegetables. If we look at the demographics that are suffering from food insecurity in Australia, those that had um, received assistance from a food relief um, charity were twice as likely to be from Generation Y. That's ages 24 to 37. Following on from that, they were more likely to be unemployed or from low-income families, single-parent families, mentally ill, disabled, elderly, indigenous and women. <clears throat> so when we think about incorporating urban agriculture into our cities, we really need to be focusing, about, um, focusing on these demographics and realising who do we want to benefit, who really needs fresh fruit and vegetables in our cities. We need to be looking at issues such as access, affordability and incorporating education and training into the mix. This idea of introducing urban agriculture to reduce food insecurity isn't new and it's been happening in other countries for decades. In particular, um, Cuba in Havana with the fall of the Soviet Union, Cuba had this problem where they weren't getting their food supply they lost their petroleum supply and they were facing huge issues of um, food insecurity. And so what they did is the government implemented a national program and priority based on urban agriculture. They said, well, what resources do we have? And this is where the technique of organoponics um, came and was invented by the Cubans where they used um, household waste, so food scraps, uh, crop residue, and livestock manure. And with these three things, they were able to enrich the soil and they built small farms, um, rooftop gardens and everything. And what they did was um, they created cooperatives. The government implemented small offices all throughout the city to provide the support. And um, within a decade, half of the landmass of the city was being used to produce food. In 89,000 backyards, they were producing fruits and vegetables, condiments, small livestock, guinea pigs, rabbits, poultry, and whatever they didn't, um, whatever was left over from the domestic consumption, they would sell on the local market, so they were getting an income as well. And interestingly, with 
the market, it was set up so the, um, the location uh, the sales points were within five kilometres of the production units. So they weren't relying on transport. And they were having these sale units all throughout the city, so the access and the affordability was there. And furthermore, um, they would set up priority destinations. So they would make sure the people that needed it the most were getting this fresh supply of fruit and vegetables. In Colombia, the government implemented urban agriculture and the result was that it reduced malnutrition by 30%. And another interesting thing about Colombia was that they had um, issue of malnutrition, poverty, but they also had this huge influx of rural to urban migration. So they utilised the knowledge of all these um, people living in the cities that had this background of food production. They utilised that knowledge and they... Um, included women and elderly people in the process of training and education. So it became like a community-based and empowerment um, process and it's become very successful. So when I look back at Sydney and I look at some of the projects we're implementing here, um, yes, we've got some community gardens with um, Oz Harvester doing some great things, but what I'm not seeing much of is this priority and focus on these people that need it the most. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Lenore and Toby have to say about this because they probably know a lot, a lot of more about this than I do. Um, but I really want to see urban ag agriculture in Sydney um, to really build on our city's resilience, but also inclusion. So making sure everyone has access to healthy fruit and vegetables. And um, by using education and making more of it our lifestyle, um, we will also be a more livable city. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you for having me here tonight. I'm uh, very thrilled to uh, be speaking in this beautiful place. And the take-home message of my little talk tonight is simple. It's that we need to make room for food and we're not doing so and this is going to be a very big problem. But first, I, I want to go into the amazing things that happen to our local food systems when we protect farmland. But first, I'm starting with the literal big picture. This map was created only last year by the U.S. Geological Survey, and it's the first one of its kind. And what it shows, that bright green, is all of Earth's cropland, all 1.87 billion hectares of it. And uh, that's about 14% of the Earth's land area, except uh, excluding glaciated areas. So we're already cropping 14% of the land surface. We also graze another 25%, so about 39% of the Earth's surface, the non-ice surface, is already being used for agriculture. So if you ever hear that old joke where you know the alien comes to Earth and they inevitably meet a farmer, it's actually pretty likely four out of ten times, they're going to land on a farm. 
And we don't have a lot more wiggle room. The UN figures maybe about 20% expansion possible, but we're beating into forests and wetlands. And all while this is happening, we're losing land every year to desertification and salification and uh, erosion, but also 2 million hectares a year, or one one-thousandth of the total, is lost to sprawl. And that might not sound hopelessly terrible. I mean, it bothers me, but I do this for a living. But 4% of the Earth's surface is already urbanized. It's covered in cities and mostly suburbs. So, this makes sense. We build our cities in the best places to grow food. We always have. But I want to be a little more positive. We've accepted this creeping loss, and farmland is around the world viewed as a bit of development in waiting. If you have a crazy idea that needs land, there's a farm somewhere you're going to ruin to build that thing. Sorry, I'm a little jaded. This is what I do all day is fight this sort of thing. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. And if we invest in farmland protection, and it's an investment, we get a different landscape, one that's been called agroburbia. Now, that term isn't mine. I wish it was, but my lab uses it. And it came from a historian by the name of Paul Sandel out of California. And what he was studying was the suburbs around L.A. in the Inland Empire. And in the early days of L.A. expansion, the streetcars went way out into the surround, and you could buy a five or ten acre orange grove in these little towns like Ontario, California. And um, you would grow your oranges, you'd pick them and sell them to the local cooperative. The town actually came with a cooperative. I'd like to see a suburb that does that now. And uh, they were beautiful and they made money. The towns actually turned a tidy profit, but they weren't protected and they're gone. LA has long since swallowed those towns. And if you want to think about a big city, L.A. covers 16,000 square kilometers. I study there, I find it a fascinating place, but the scope of the lost farmland is quite stunning. But in other places, agroburbia survives. I come from the lower mainland of British Columbia, and in 1970s, we were facing the same problem, but we had very little land. The entire region has only 2,000 square kilometers of flat area because it's surrounded by mountains, ocean, and the U.S., and they don't let us just drive our tractors down and farm. We've tried a few times. They don't like that. They talk about building a wall. It's something. <laughs> but um, so in the 70s, we realized we had to do something and there was an election, and the far-left party won, and what they did was start the Agricultural Land Reserve. And what it did was take 50% of the farmland in our area and make it farmland forever. If you buy it, you can only farm it. And there are very strict rules upon it. And that was very lucky. And what I want to say is what a difference it made. The parcels are all different sizes because it fell upon the landscape based on soil and creating a continuous farm region. 
And so there's this great diversity from five acres of farm to a few hundred acres. The landscape is preserved and farmers invest in intensive crops like blueberries, hazelnuts, things that take generations to really do well. They build farm stores. People take from the city, take their kids to the farm stores, and then those kids take their kids to the same farm store run by the kids of the original owners. And they start to love farmland. 80 to 90 percent of residents in the lower mainland where we have one of the worst housing crises on the entire planet think the ALR is a great idea and oppose getting rid of it in any form. So we kind of won, although we're still fighting the battle. But now how does this translate into farm gate and uh, commercial farming? Uh, the average acre in the Fraser Valley returns $15,000 a year which is about twice the next highest productive land in Canada. To put it in perspective, we have 0.2% of the country's farmland and return 4.5% of the country's farm gate receipts. Add into that the spin-offs, the agritourism, the uh, restaurant culture, the product um, uh, processing, uh, and suddenly uh, farming is still British Columbia's second most profitable industry. Sadly, behind real estate, which gives you an idea why we have to fight so hard. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah oh, it's always a fight. Um, so, what has this done? Well, it's created wonderful farmers markets. They started out illegally because there was a law against farmers markets. And, uh, yeah, there's a useful law. Um, and now uh, the Vancouver Farmers Markets, I was on their board for many years, and uh, we turn about $8 million in profit a year, and we run 12 markets, and the city has a liaison who works with us, and the city's goal is to have a market in each neighborhood so that every Vancouverite can walk to the market. This keeps about uh, 200 farmers on the ALR uh, with a good uh, place to come and sell their, their goods. It's also created Vancouver's great food scene. Uh, now, I did uh, write a book on Canadian cuisine, and I can tell you horror stories about cod tongues and eating raw seal meat and all these wonderful things, which actually were glorious. I had a wonderful three years researching that. But in British Columbia, our cuisine looks a little more like California cuisine. It's very vegetable-based, and we use that fresh, local, seasonal product to fuel the food. And so we may take sushi and fill it with vegetables and, um, you know, our fresh veg and those tall pies. That's uh, actually a farm near my university that sells the tall pies. And uh, everyone who works there gets a full day workshop on how to successfully cut that pie. <laughs> and uh, it's just as hard as you would imagine. And I want to mention that one of the things I found when I was writing about Canadian cuisine is that we mix things. We take other cultures' recipes and we incorporate foods from our own landscape. So, for example, with sushi, or in Vancouver, you might encounter a blueberry lassi. 
You won't find a blueberry lassie in India. They're made with other things. But uh, we take what we have lots of, blueberries, because we really do. We're one of the world's biggest producers. And we incorporate it. Um, my town, Abbotsford, is uh, 50% Indo-Canadian. Many of those people are farmers. And so we have a very diverse range of crops. Now, I know my time is short, so my conclusion is that in British Columbia, setting aside a very large amount of farmland on the rural-urban fringe paid off in a huge way. It contained our cities and made them not sprawl. It preserved our farmland and created farmers' markets, cuisine, and one of our largest industries. And it was worth it. And I think of it as a, a success, even though daily I'm fighting mega mansions on the land, subdivision, illegal dumping, people trying to get the land out so they can build shopping malls, casinos, whatever they want to build. It's an ongoing thing. It's been 45 years. I'm sure 100 years from now, another professor will be talking about fighting probably the same things. But the key is... When you do this, when you create what Carolyn Steele called a Setopia or food place, people start to love their farms. And once people love the farms, you can protect them and keep them. And we can all keep eating because we have to make room for food. Thanks. Thanks so much, Lenore. That was fabulous. Um, a really wonderful transition now from preserving farmland to creating new opportunities within the cities themselves. Thank you, Toby. Don't, 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 don't stop. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? I'm just a bit tall to lean over the mic there. <clears throat> So, uh, hi, welcome. Thanks a lot for you guys. It's really interesting. I've just been at the Urban Agriculture Forum in, in Melbourne and Lenore was speaking a couple of times and I never heard it once, so that was really interesting to actually hear that now. Um, first of all, I wanted to define what a social enterprise is so that you guys really know where we're coming from. A social enterprise is a business that trades intentionally to tackle some sort of social problem and that we get our majority of income from trade, not donations or gifts or grants, and we reinvest at least 50% of our profits back into what we're doing. We have a number of characteristics of a social enterprise. We have a clear social environmental uh, mission set out in our governing documents. We generate the majority of our income through trade. We reinvest our profit, and in our case, as a not-for-profit, we reinvest 100% of our profit back into our social mission. We're autonomous of the state. And if you're a for-profit, because you can be a for-profit social enterprise, you're majority controlled in the interests of your social mission and we're accountable and transparent. Recently, Green World Revolution became a uh, charity, a, a public benevolent institution and a registered charity and we now have DGR status, so if anyone's looking to support a charity at the end, come and see me. <laughs> um, but our mission is to provide jobs. We have two purposes. One is about actual job creation for long-term unemployed people so that they can be directly relieved from poverty felt by being on the dole. And the other is to provide skills uh, and experiences to long-term unemployed people so that they can be directly relieved from 
poverty, suffering, distress and misfortune that comes from being in a state of poverty and being on the dole. But six years ago we started Green World Revolution and it was a bit of an idea at the time we thought we'd start an organisation that could do something good for the environment and create a few jobs at the same time. We spent the first whole year applying for funding. We applied for the funding, we got shortlisted and then we jumped through a lot of hoops and we got $50,000 at the end of 2012 and by March in 2013 we found this property mostly because that uh, big white box you see at the back there next to the sea container is a worm farm which was donated to us and we needed somewhere to house it. And uh, across the road from my house was this property and it was covered in 16 cubic metres of waste and uh, we removed the waste and put the farm in. Costa came to visit and he couldn't believe after two months of us being there that we hadn't once fertilised the garden beds and we had things growing about this big and bigger at the time and we weren't fertilising. We use a wicking bed system for this and you can see that with the pipes sticking out of the containers there and I'll talk a bit more about wicking beds as we get into it. Unfortunately, by mid-2013, the funding ran out and the land got sold all kind of at once. Um, luckily, though, down the road, three doors down the road, was this farm, which we're now at. A lot of those planter boxes were actually moved in situ on the back of a truck with all the plants and everything in them, which is one of the beautiful things about wicking beds. And we've always wanted to design infrastructure that if we had to move, we could move and we could take that infrastructure and those plants with us. And it's something if you are planning urban farming, uh, one, the benefit here is that uh, you wouldn't want to grow in this ground. We don't know what's in that ground and mostly gravel and... And, and rubble and that sort of thing, but there's a lot of brown zone land, especially in Sydney. If you're looking to do urban farming, you want to go into containerised farming. So you can see we moved all that farm over and we started off doing CSA boxes, which is the bottom there. We were selling those for 25 bucks a box and people could come to the farm and collect them. We were doing a whole range of product. The farm has evolved over the last five years, four and a half years, and it's constantly changing. Um, in fact, at the moment, I took some photos there the other day and, and it's completely overgrown and looks really crazy. So I put this photo in instead, which is when it looks really good. <laughs> Shortly after, we got brand new roll-on lawn donated to us and that was a really good thing because we were all dying from dust on the property. We've liked to use as much of the infrastructure as we can from recycled components. So uh, we work with people through the work for the doll. Oops, I'll go back. Mr. Slide, here we go. We work with, with over 150 unemployed people to develop the Gladstone Street Farm and working with unemployed people, working with long-term unemployed people, they have varying skills and experience and we wanted to develop infrastructure which they would be able to do themselves with materials that they could potentially go and find themselves. So we could teach them how to do that but then they could go and do that sort of thing at home as well. So here we have, and it's starting at the... Uh, top left hand side there is Simon and Edward. Edward is now one of our employees. He's on the left there and has been a work for the Dole supervisor. And when Edward first came to work with us, he had been unemployed for four years. He's got a cert for in horticulture and he's the only horticulturalist we have. Um, I'm not a horticulturalist. I'm self-taught in the whole thing. Wade there uh, to the right-hand side at the top is building the shed, which we made out of pallets. And then down the bottom, we've got Simon is lining out the garden beds there. All of that, that infrastructure has come off the street as rubbish, essentially. And then at the bottom is uh, Edward again with 
Seamus, we got a job where the guys from the Work for the Doll project could come and work on Fridays as a paid job outside of their Work for the Doll building garden infrastructure for a local cafe. So we try as much as possible to look for opportunities to make jobs for people. In 2016, we were offered this small patch of land at the back of the Art Gallery of Western Australia and this was originally set up uh, back in, uh, I think, around about 2010. They redid the garden and it was designed as a low-input garden and by the time we got there, we discovered it was a no-input garden. <laughs> so... By that was in May when that photo was taken and by October when we got all the planning through and decided to go in there, the weeds were up to about hip height. So we got a work for the Dole project to build this site. It's called Agua Botanical and over six months we worked with 48 guys. The thing with working with um, unemployed people is often they don't want to have their photo taken which is why you might see the same people over and over again here or you're looking at that going, that guy can't count, that's not 48. <laughs> so that, that's the vibe there. But in the bottom here uh, you see Tristan and Jess and Jess was on the program and Jess is now employed with us and Tristan is our first ever employee uh, and it's still he's been managing the farm while I've been away. So here's some of the guys making the wicking beds. We make the wicking beds out of recycled IBC containers which we source from the agricultural industry. They're a waste product. They're very readily available. Practically any city in the world would have this waste product. And we handmade all of the shingles, some 2,500 of them for the 25 planter boxes we did. And you can see the guys there working on it. Also, uh, the top right-hand side with the ropes and the wheels attached, that's because the Agua farm is 1.2 kilometres away from the Gladstone Street farm, so we had the guys move all the boxes by hand across the street, which made for a nice parade. This is uh, wicking bed technology. It's a human scale technology, and if, you've got a, if you are interested in wicking beds and you're interested in, in gardening and got your pen handy, check out Colin Austin's work, and he's from... Queensland in Australia, of course, he invented wicking beds and most people know about wicking beds than, and might have heard about putting gravel or glass or rolled glass or containers or something under the surface of your soil and then you put a shade cloth or weed matting on top and then you put your soil on top. And Colin Austin and I would say that is sub-irrigation and uh, does not work as well as what a wicking bed is where you put an organic compound like a wood chip mulch at the bottom and you have no separation between your soil and the mulch. These beds at uh, Agua, we first planted them out there in uh, December in 2016 and then we replanted again in April and we're now in February, nearly March 2017. We've never fertilised since the original soil going in. So the system is really sound, contains all of your nutrients and grows these amazing food crops. So with the pumpkins up there on the right hand side, top right hand side, we had a whole bunch of old seed. Uh, some of it was four or five years old and I said to the guys, just throw it all in. <laughs> 200 pumpkins popped up. It was really amazing and we got a really big crop of pumpkins growing off the fence. So we've set up this farm for chefs to be able to come and forage. We call it a forage farm and the chefs will come to the farm and be able to pick what they want. And we crop it out and replant again and again because we're not fertilising. It's self-contained with nutrients. So what are we producing? Who do we supply it to and what do we do with it? Here we have microgreens, amaranth on the 
left and sunflowers on the right. We grow these in outdoor hydroponics and we've developed our own techniques for doing this on the, in the outdoors. We also do gourmet garnish and edible flowers. We do baby vegetables. We do a whole range of unusual things that no one's ever heard of, so I'm not going to tell you what they are because we're keeping them secret. <laughs> but really, we produce about uh, 60 different varieties per season and we've done about 120 different plant varieties over the year. Here we have uh, Chef Liam on the left-hand side is foraging at Agua and some of the trays are from the Petition Kitchen in Perth. We're currently supplying 35 restaurants, uh, most of which are in the Perth CBD and we deliver to those on bicycles, on an electric bike and then we do one day a week at the moment on Wednesdays, we do a car ride to about eight restaurants as well. So this is the Agua Botanical Salad was created by Coup d'etat in Perth and Chef uh, Liam is the exec chef there now. Everything there on the plate except for the little seedy sauce at the bottom, or sauce made of seeds rather, um, <laughs> is... Uh, uh, everything there has come from the agrobotanical farm. And so how that, opera that operates with us now is the restaurant will send us a text and say, give us eight bowls of produce and we'll go on the farm and pick eight bowls of whatever's great and give it to them and they make a brand new salad every time. So often the chefs are now actually contacting us before they do their menu change and they'll be talking to me about what we're growing to inform how their menu is going to go forward. So I always thought it might be the other way around and I guess when we started, I would contact chefs and go, what do, you, what do you want us to grow? What do you want us to do? And now we've been going a while, they're really asking for us to inform them as to what's happening. And it's a real thing about educating restaurants about seasonal produce because I think it's very popularist for restaurants to be talking about having local food and seasonal produce but the actual reality of that when you know they can't get basil all year round or they can't get tomatoes all year round the reality starts to to sink in if you're being actually seasonal although NWA you can pretty much grow tomatoes all year round at the minute that's the benefit of climate change at the moment uh, <laughs> I know there are some benefits surely <laughs> Uh, so here you see the flowers getting used with the pastry and then that's uh, salad burnet on a chocolate dish there and I don't know if anyone's tried salad burnet before but it tastes a little bit like watermelon rind so it's a really fascinating uh, herb. has been a weed in lots of gardens it's been considered to be a weed. So since 2013, GWR has created 19 new paid employment opportunities for long-term unemployed people, including five ongoing positions at the Gladstone Street Farm. And we are actually have two other projects, which I'll also talk about in the next slide. We're currently providing upwards of 90 hours of paid employment per week for previously long-term unemployed people. And for instance, uh, this fellow in the bottom left there, his name's Mark. I first met Mark when we were actually managing... Uh, another farm. We were managing Perth City Farm when we first started up. I decided to leave that out of the presentation. I suppose it's another story. But Mark, um, I met him in 2013 and he had been unemployed since leaving high school and he told me that he thought he was completely unemployable. Um, he had some learning difficulties when he was younger and, and a lot of barriers to cross. So I worked with him at Perth City Farm for a year and then when we started up our own work for the Dole Projects in early 2015, 
he turned up to our project as well. And that's what we see again and again. We see the same people coming back through the system in those projects. So Mark and I were one day sitting down doing seeding across from each other, planting the seeds for the microgreens and Mark looks up with a big smile on his face and says, I could do this for a job. And six weeks later he had a job. It's that sort of motivation that's required coming from the guys we work with to motivate me to go, okay, we're going to make a job for you now. You're showing an interest in that. Now, Mark worked for us for two and a half years, made some great uh, innovations and and flow in our workflow, produced a lot of microgreens, and after two and a half years, uh, just uh, earlier last year, he came to me and said he was going to leave the farm. I said, well, what are, you, what are you going to do? He said, well, I now know what I want to do. I've got real purpose in my life. I'm going to go and study zoology and I want to work with animals and I want to thank you for giving purpose to my life. So at an anecdotal level, that's a really amazing outcome of what we do. The other thing with Mark was that we employed him in October and December that year. I said, hey, Mark, what are you doing for Christmas? And he said, I'm buying my mum a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> hey, that's great. He saved up his work money over those months to buy his mum a vacuum cleaner. At the time, Mark was on the dole at getting $280 a fortnight and when he started working with us for eight hours a week, we gave him 160 bucks a week. So we doubled his income pretty much with a day's work. So um, when we think about poverty, we often think about third world type situations but the reality is that we have many people living under the poverty line on the dole which is why Green World Revolution has been set up to help people get up off the dole. In addition to the urban farming activities, we have the two farms. We also just took on this recent project called the Bottle Yard Apartments. Uh, the Bottle Yard Apartments are pretty fascinating. I met the architect who designed this and he came to me and he said, yeah, that's going to be amazing. There's permaculture everywhere. People will be able to walk out of their apartments, pluck carrots out of the ground and pop them in their salad. Permaculture, permaculture, permaculture. I went, wow, it sounds amazing. My wife and I lived down the road and we saw the home open. We went to the home open and I said to the woman there, can I check out the permaculture garden? And she kind of glazed over and I walked out the back and realised why it was all dead (laughs) and dusty and really pretty crap. Um, So I contacted the people that own the the apartment and uh, the developers and said, look, you know, you've got to do something about this if you're trying to sell gardening. We're a not-for-profit. Why don't you support us and give us a job to develop it? That pumpkin photo was taken on Wednesday and we've been there since October. It's hard slog because it actually hasn't been designed very well. So um, the people, people have really good intentions for greening the city but then in the case of this particular development, they didn't come and talk to any gardeners and they didn't come and talk to any farmers. And the gardeners they did talk to do decorative stuff, so they put uh, landscaping soil throughout. They didn't do a nice organic mix for the, for the vegetables, so they just did that throughout. So it's been really hard to retrofit that project, and I think if you're looking at developing things, the closer you can get to being involved in the ground at the beginning, the better off things are going to be. Uh, Aside from that, we also look after the historic heart of Perth's planter boxes. There were 100 planter boxes put into the east end of Perth and they've created jobs for Edward and Jess and Jess was on the work for the Dole. She came off the work for the Dole and volunteered with us and again, within six to eight weeks, had a job in the historic heart of Perth looking after the planter boxes. And boy, she looks happy, eh? (laughs) 
she also has been doing production on the farm this week and I think for Jess we might have created a life career for her. As with Edward, he's told me that he'll work with us for as long as the work is available and Tristan who had a, a young baby within the time when he was on work for the doll with us, the baby's now three, recently at our Christmas drinks quibbed that maybe his son would work with us when he's older. So he's already thinking about a succession in urban farming and when we met him four or five years ago, he had never even heard of it and he knew nothing about it. So uh, it's really an amazing space for creating social change and change in people's lives. And at a, a parallel to that is we're also educating uh, Tristan and, and Jess and Edward about different ways of nutrition and different ways of eating and they get a lot of benefits from the food we produce. So if you want to check us out, we're there, gwr.org.au. As I said, we do have DGR status. Uh, come and see us. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm more than happy to answer any questions. Keep talking about it. Thanks. <laughs>